Okay, today we are going to discuss protein modification. This is one of the longest modules um, in this chapter or season. Um, although the idea is actually very simple, uh, I just spend majority of the time explaining in detail the examples of protein modifications. Um, so let's begin. Um, uh, remind, or I'll remind you that after a polypeptide is formed, right, it folds to a secondary and tertiary structure, after which it is officially called a, a protein, right? And you might say, wait, already, Hamza, that's wrong. I thought you said that uh, a protein is in its native or uh, proper conformation, in other words, it's activated form, um, when it's when it reaches its quaternary structure, not its tertiary. And I'm telling you that that's, that's still correct. That's not an incorrect statement. But in terms of classification as a protein, functional or non-functional, just is it a protein, a building block, uh, it only needs to reach secondary and tertiary structure. And that kind of makes sense because those are when folding occurs, right? No folding occurs in number at uh, primary structure and um, uh, quaternary is just, quaternary structure is just proteins bonding with other proteins. The actual folding uh, into sheets, into beta sheets and alpha helices, as well as uh, in the 3D structure occur in the secondary and tertiary conformations of a protein. I'm actually going to sum up the entire concept of protein modification in one sentence. It's actually really easy. Uh, it's basically the idea that some proteins must be modified further to become functional. Okay. Translation, not every protein coming out of um, a protein synthesis is completely functional. And we already know kind of the opposite of this, right? We talked about uh, the examples of tRNA and rRNA as, as uh, nucleic acids that are functional before they need, before they become a protein. So we're kind of talking about the opposite, about molecules that even when they become a protein, they're not functional yet. Specifically, some modifications need to occur. And these, these modifications, we group them into two classifications, co-translational and post-translational modifications. And really, it's all in the name. I don't even need to explain it. Co-translational modifications are modifications that occur during translation, right? Co-translation with translation. Um, whereas post-translational modifications occur after um, translation. And I just want to be absolutely clear. When I say modifications, I mean a modification to the protein structure. So usually this involves adding a functional group or removing a functional group. Although the bulk of this module, I'll be talking about specific examples. But I just want to be absolutely clear on what I mean when I say modifications to a protein. Before we actually begin um, explaining these two classifications, I want to make clear that co-translational modifications are actually quite um, uh, rare, or not rare, but they're definitely less prominent. Uh, and post-translational modifications uh, are the um, are uh, comprise most modifications that occur in living systems. And if you kind of pause for a second, just think about this rationally, that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because uh, the modification is something we do as the final step in activating a protein, right? That's what I said at the beginning of this module, that protein modification is that proteins are not functional until this modification occurs, right? So it kind of makes sense that most of them would happen after the protein is finished, right? Co-translational modifications, when modifications occur with protein synthesis, as in as the protein is being constructed, it's also being modified. That's very efficient, but that's not very prominent. Okay, I just want to make that distinction. Um, finally, before I really begin talking about the bulk of this module, um, this module uh, content is very um, imbalanced. Okay, we actually only have one example of co-translational modification, and then we have, I believe, five or six, one, two, three, four, I have six examples of post-translational modification. Again, kind of going back to the idea that co-translational modifications are not that prominent. They're not that, they're not that common, right? We don't really do them very often. And the ones we do, the ones that do occur are very few, 
right? Um, so if anything, that could kind of, that should kind of help you remember which one is more prominent and which one is less prominent based on how many examples I give. So co-translation modification, the only example I have is acetylation, right? And you actually know exactly what this is. This is literally just the um, uh, uh, replacement of, uh, uh, of an amino acid in, in some examples uh, with an acetyl group, right? So it's not necessarily always the addition of an acetyl group, but rather the replacement, right? So, you know, if you take a polypeptide, the first amino acid we talked about, what is the first uh, amino acid usually in the sequence? The, or in other words, what is the amino acid that corresponds to the start codon AUG? It's methionine. We talked about that, right? Methionine uh, or uh, formal methionine if you're talking about prokaryotes. Um, and so acetylation is the only uh, example that I have listed for co-translational modification. And what, let me just make this abundantly clear that acetylation, the process of replacing a group with an acetyl group, uh, occurs as the protein is being translated. Okay, so nothing about transcription, nothing in or even close to the nucleus. This is all happening at the ribosome or later. Okay, uh, later meaning uh, post-translational modifications where the protein has been completely synthesized. Um, so with that, let's um, let's start the bulk of this module, which is the examples of the post-translational modifications. I have six listed here, and the acronym that I made for it uh, is GLUMP. G L U M P P. Uh, I I know I've this is the third mnemonic I've made after um, lithol for types of enzymes, Marty for um, uh, non-enzymatic proteins, and I believe that was it. Um, so yes, GLUMP, G-L-U-M-P-P. -P. These are the specific examples of post-translational modifications. I'm going to run and uh, run through them as an overview quickly, and then I'll go individually to them. So the first one is glycosylation, then lipidation, then uh, phosphorylation, then um, methylation, then proteolysis, and finally ubiquitination. Okay. So um, let's begin with glycosylation. That kind of, uh, really the first few that I shared are actually, you know, pretty clear, right? Glycosylation is addition of a carb, right? Or a sugar. Glyco means sugar. Lipidation is addition of a lipid. Uh, phosphorylation is addition of a phosphate group. Um, and after that, I believe, oh, and methylation is addition of a methyl group. And then the last two we'll talk about. So I just, I want to run over it very quickly so that, you know, we can kind of keep focused because I know this is the review playlist. So I should be going pretty fast. So glycosylation is the addition of a carbohydrate to a protein. Uh, and it's usually done to proteins embedded in the cell membrane. Okay, so glycosylation uh, occurs very frequently with uh, um, proteins uh, embedded in the cell membrane. Okay, so we're dealing with the cell membrane a lot, actually. Um, glycosylation uh, specifically allows for identification of cells. Okay, and the perfect example of this is blood types, right? You've heard of blood types A, B, and O, um, and really all these are is the uh, the red bl red blood cells in each of these three individual organisms have different um, carbohydrate markers. Okay, let me explain. You have red, uh, you have blood type A. That means that you have the normal red blood cell that everybody has, right? And then you have uh, carbohydrate type X bonded to it. Right. And so that and so that that way your body knows, uh, you know, this is this is the red blood cell and it kind of allows you to mark this type of red blood cell as type A. Um, and then blood type B would be the same red blood cell. The red blood cell doesn't change. It's, it's the same type of cell and everything, but the carbohydrates attached to it. So like I think of literally like fingers sticking off of it, whatever helps you. Um, I kind of most of this module is me drawing, so it might be a little bit difficult to follow. Um, but the idea is with uh, blood type B, you have a different carbohydrate bonded. And then uh, with blood type AB, you have one carbohydrate from A bonded and one type from B bonded. Okay. So uh, what I drew is for blood type A, I drew like 
a squiggly line, and then for blood type B, I drew like a circle, like attached to the red blood cell. And then for blood type AB, I drew a squiggly line and a circle to show that it has both markers on it. And finally, blood type O, there's nothing on it, right? There are no carbs for that category. So this is kind of a run through of the, the um, blood types and what makes a blood type, uh, that what makes the differing blood types possible is these biological markers that come in the form of carbohydrates that were added on after translation in, uh, dur during the process of glycosylation. Okay, so again, adding carbohydrates, that's what glycosylation is, you know what that is, and specifically for biological markers, as in for identifying cells. Number two is lipidation, uh, and this is addition of a lipid to a protein, again, occurring after a phosphorylation. Uh, an, an example of this is something you're probably not familiar with. It is known as the GPI anchor. Um, and this is, uh, this is essentially lipids that tether proteins to membranes. Uh, to the membrane, okay? So uh, whereas carbohydrates were more for identification of that type of cell, lipids are kind of like a, like a you know, that, that heavy stone thing at the bottom of a balloon, okay? It keeps the, uh, it, it keeps the proteins attached to the membrane. And, uh, you know, that one's kind of easier for me to remember because whenever I think of lipids, I think of like sticky fat, right? And I think of a protein getting stuck in this, you know, fat pool in the membrane, whatever helps you remember it. Um, but I think of lipids as sticky and that's what lipids are doing, right? They're allowing, they're holding the pro, they're kind of like the glue for the proteins uh, to stick to the mem to, uh, you know, stay in the membrane. Okay. And this is again called the GPI anchor. Specifically, the anchor plunges into the cell membrane, making the nonpolar hydrophobic tails uh, um, or the nonpolar hydrophobic interior available to an unbound protein, allowing for binding. Okay, so again, you know, uh, really thinking of that glue example, I kind of like that example, I didn't plan on that, but think of lipids as the glue that attach proteins to the membrane, okay? So you, 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 the anchor plunges into the cell uh, and it kind of accesses that nonpolar interior because the cell is a closed bubble, right? And it's all, and it's all hydrophilic on the outside, but we want the hydrophobic, uh, like, uh, you know, hydrophobic part, um, uh, the interior to bind these proteins. And so that's why this lipid makes that possible. It's literally a glue for that protein. Specifically, proteins have polar and nonpolar sections uh, and by chance, uh, proteins no nonpolar portion will interact with the hydrophilic heads of the membrane, right? So remember that, uh, you know, nonpolar, uh, when you put nonpolar with polar, nothing happens, right? The protein doesn't bind, okay? So if, if you know, a protein's uh, um, nonpolar region is, you know, trying to bind to the uh, cell membrane, then this anchor will come and kind of literally split the cell open a little bit to make that that uh, nonpolar interior available, right? Say the say the protein uh, is very has a large polar section, then the GPI anchor wouldn't need to dive into this, in open the center of the molecule and get access to it, but it would attach the uh, polar part to the polar outside of the cell. Uh, and so this is kind of the GPI anchor acting as glue again, like I said. Note that these two that I've that I've talked about, glycosylation and lipidation, are structure-based modifications. They're of or relating to structure, not necessarily function. And that's kind of what we're going to get into next with phosphorylation. You're probably already familiar, but these two were structural, um, uh, structural-based modifications. In addition, this is just for a little trivia or whatever. Glycosylation and lipidation occur in the endoplasmic reticulum and in the Golgi apparatus. Um, uh, although not all. In fact, I actually kind of forgot to mention that for all post. 
most translational modifications, nearly all of them happen in these two um, organelles, right? So kind of note that down, that nearly all post-translational modifications occur uh, in the ER or the Golgi apparatus, though not all of them, but it's enough to make a distinction. So that's glycosylation and lipidation. Let's begin with phosphorylation now. And this is the first of the more functional-based uh, modifications. Um, and, and many of you are familiar with it. I know I took this in my entry uh, bio-level class. Uh, I can actually summarize it where phosphorylation is kind of used as an on or off switch. Okay, on or off switch to activate or deactivate a protein. Let me get into it. So phosphorylation is the addition of a phosphate group, PO4, 3 minus, to a protein. Uh, and the example that Han Academy includes is the sodium potassium pump, uh, or Na plus, K plus ATPase, ATPase. Uh, and that's the enzyme, right? That's that's the official name because the sodium potassium pump is really just an enzyme, right? Again, uh, so uh, you know, you know, uh, if you're remembering from high school, you probably called it the sodium potassium pump. Now that we're using more MCAT um, uh, biochemical related terms and terminology, uh, just know that it is also called the Na plus K plus ATPase, and that's pretty easy because Na plus K plus is sodium and potassium ions, and then ATPase. What does the pump do? Well, when things diffuse across from it, ATP is generated, right? So that's where ATP comes from. And then finally, ACE indicates an enzyme. Um, so let's begin with this example. Uh, the, um, uh, the pump, Na plus K plus ATP ACE, is responsible for maintaining the proper osmolarity concentrations of the sodium and potassium ions for the internal and external environments of the cell. So in other words, kind of just making sure that the, the external and internal environments of the cell are balanced with relation to these two ions, right? Um, and so you need to know, memorize this, that the pump contains three Na plus receptors and two K plus receptors, okay? So just remember the numbers three and two. And if you're, you know, if you're having trouble remembering which, which number goes to which ion, well, you can use your knowledge of chemistry and periodicity, right? Na plus is higher up on the periodic table, which means it has a lower atomic radius. It's literally smaller. Na plus, Na plus ions are smaller than K plus. So that's how I remember, well, if it's smaller, it can fit more. The pump can fit more Na plus receptors because each, each, uh, uh, each uh, Na plus ion is smaller, whereas K plus is a more bulky ion, um, and so, it, and so the, the pump can only provide it with two open spaces. Um, so note that the um, the pump begins by begin. I'm just going to call it the pump just to save time. Um, but note that the pump uh, begins by facing inwards, uh, and then when Na plus binds, it rotates outward to release that Na plus and bind K plus. And when K plus binds, it rotates back inwards. And I know that was kind of complicated, but that's really the whole thing. Pause. Okay, let me let me say it again. Okay, the think of the pump as closed originally, and and er, facing inward is a better instead of closed and open. Think of facing in and out. Think of the pump really the way I think about it is one of those like revolving uh, doors at hotels. Okay, where instead of the door closing, it just rotates one way. That's really actually that's a perfect example. I don't even know where I come up with these, uh, but that's a really good example for this pump because that's what it does. Okay, so um, again, I'll repeat it and I'll go slower. Um, when, so the hotel door is initially facing the inside of the hotel. Then when Na binds to one of the three receptors, the doors open or swivel, or sorry, not open, the doors rotate outwards to release that Na+. However, when the door, when the door is, is releasing that Na+, K+, binds. And so now it rotates in. So in other words, let me, let me simplify it even further. Na+, causes it to rotate outward. 
and k plus causes it to rotate inward. Okay, uh, and you can kind of think of whatever you need to to memorize that. Uh, you can say like um, na plus are um, guests that are exiting or exiting or checking out, and then k plus are guests that are entering or checking in. Right. So na plus when it binds. They're leaving. The, the 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 pump faces outwards to get rid of them. Whereas when K plus binds, it the pump faces inwards to allow the K plus to enter. Note that this really depends on the situation. It's not always that K plus is entering and NA plus is exiting, um, but that is relative to when the pump starts facing the inside of the hotel. Um, but again, it really depends on the constant the previous concentrations of the internal and external environments. And really, it, it doesn't really matter because that, that wasn't the takeaway from that example that I gave. What I wanted to focus on was the rotational movement following binding and the preceding release. Okay, or the actually the succeeding release, what comes after, right? In other words, the, the pump rotates to, um, uh, uh, wait, the pump rotates in response to binding and then it releases that. So it rotates and then it releases whatever was bound. Na plus bound, binds, it rotates outward and releases it. K plus binds, it rotates inward and releases it. Um, rotation occurs when the receptors are full, which is caused by dephosphorylation of ATP to ADP. So now we're actually on the concept of the modification. I had to explain the pump a little bit, uh, but now we've actually arrived at the concept of phosphorylation. Um, so in other words, uh, uh, let me repeat it. Receptors are full, which causes dephosphorylation of ATP to ADP. In other words, when receptors get full, you chop off a, a phosphate group from ATP forming ADP. And this detached phosphate binds to that pump. And this, this is what allows for the, the conformation to change. So again, let me, let me make it clear. An Na plus or a, or a sodium ion or a potassium ion binds. Okay, When that binds, a phosphate group is detached from ATP. It's it, it, a, a phosphate group is taken from ATP and attached to the pump itself. When that pump is phosphorylated, when that phosphate group is attached to the revolving doors, the pump, that's what allows the door to revolve. That's what allows the pump to rotate is the attachment of that, phosph of that phosphate group. And this is what I was kind of hinting before I began this, uh, this third example of modification of phosphorylation. Um, I told you that phosph phosphorylation is often used to activate and deactivate proteins, right? This is its way of activating it, right? When, the, when it's phosphorylated, it is activated. The, the pump swivels outward, okay? And, when, and, and we'll get into later. Um, um, and so this is for pumping things out. So in other words, moving materials to the extracellular space. And I just explained to you this process and I can kind of sum it up. Uh, number one, the pump binds three Na plus or two K plus. When all binding sites are occupied, ATP becomes ADP. So it's a, a phosphate is, uh, is chopped off. That phosphate attaches to the pump instead of ATP now and the pump conformation changes. So the pump rotates, okay? This is, uh, and so uh, to pump things in, because I just talked about pumping things out, to pump things in, the, just the exact opposite occurs, right? So ions fill receptors, the pump is dephosphorylated this time. Where do you think that phosphate is gonna go? If before we took a phosphate from ATP and gave it to the pump for, for pumping things out, what do you think we're gonna do when we're pumping things in? We're gonna take that phosphate that was that attached to the revolving door and we're gonna give it back to the ATP. It's literally the exact process in reverse. So you know what I'd, I'd advise you to do? I'm not gonna to spend too much time on the reverse process. I'd advise you to study the main process of pumping things out and then just reverse it. And you have your, um, you have your um, uh, process for pumping things in. Of course, I'll go over it. Um, 
um, pump phosphorylation status is inverse of the ATP and ADP phosphorylation status. This is kind of the point that I was kind of getting to is when ATP is dephosphorylated to ADP, that phosphate ends up going to the, the pump, right, the revolving door, and it attaches, right? So if, a pro if the pump is phosphorylated, the ATP is dephosphorylated, and that is, that is, the, that is pumping things out. When you're pumping things in, you dephosphorylate the pump and phosphorylate ATP. You regenerate ATP essentially. So, um, and I've stated it one more time: pump pump phosphorylated means it rotates out, and then the pump dephosphorylated means it rotates in. And so, this is kind of how I think about it: is I've I've learned phosphorylation to be activation, right? It, when something is phosphorylated, it is activated. And, you know, we, I can think of multiple examples. I'm not going to waste your time with them, but think of, you know, the, um, the pump itself, right? When it's, when it's phosphorylated, it rotates out, right? Think of ATP itself. When ADP is phosphorylated to ATP, what are you left with? You're left with a high energy molecule, ATP, right? So I think of uh, phosphorylation as activation and conversely dephosphorylation as deactivation. And that's kind of, kind of how I remembered the direction of the pump because you do want to remember that. Um, I remembered that phosphorylate to phosphorylate is to activate. And when I think of activate, I think of out or, you know, something ready to work, right? The pump facing outward, it's ready to grab ions from the extracellular space, Right? Whereas when the pump is dephosphorylated, when it's deactivated, it rotates inward and kind of powers down. And that's how I think about it. Okay? So phosphorylation is activation, which is out. The pump is out and ready to work. Dephosphor dephosphorylation is deactivation and the pump is in or it's powered down. So what we see is that the phosphorylation regulates the activity of this enzyme, which is the pump. Remember, the pump is just an enzyme. Again, I'll say that phosphorylation control phosphorylation is like the control panel for the ends this the the activity of the pump the pump's actions are dictated by phosphorylation okay finally just to finish off with the um uh, phosphorylation modification through this pump um I want to share with you the pump's ideal situation what it kind of works towards um and it, it really works towards high Na ions or sodium ions in the extracellular space and high potassium ion concentration for the intracellular space. In other words, it wants to maximize the amounts, the amount of sodium ions on the outside and potassium ions on the inside. And, and you can use whatever you need to, you know, whatever tricks to help you remember that. I, I think of it relative to the periodic table and how sodium is smaller, potassium is bigger, but whatever helps you remember, just Na is on the outside and K is on the inside. This is, again, not, not in all cases. This is what the pump is working towards, okay? So, you know, if it, if it already has that balance where there's a lot of Na on the outside and K on the inside, then the pump is, you know, not in equilibrium, but it's probably not going to do much to change that. Whereas if you have a lot of K plus on the outside and Na um, plus on the inside, then the pump is going to be doing a lot of work to switch that, to reverse that. Uh, and so that was really the longest um, modification that I'm t I've talked about today. Um, here are the last three, and they're really simple. Uh, example four is methylation. Um, and uh, this involves, as you probably can, you can tell from the name, it involves the addition of a methyl group. Okay, and you might say, where? Where are we adding the methyl group? Um, this is in the context of chromatin and chromosomes and, and genetic regulation. We're actually going to do a whole module on this at the end of this, um, actually in the, in the next season, um, but I'm going to give you a little um, intro to it. Um, so one type of methylation is the methylation of histones. Recall that histones are proteins around which DNA is wrapped. 
uh, for organization. And this is found in the chromosome. So you have DNA strands that are wrapped tightly around these histone proteins, which are these bulky, you know, boulder shaped proteins. I literally think of them as like rocks um, that the DNA winds around. And so the idea is that if you methylate or demethylate um, portions of these uh, of the structure uh, in, in terms of histone methylation, you methylate the histone um, that actually helps turn off or on specific genes and gene sequences. In other words, histone methylation is involved in what is called gene silencing. So I, I know what I just said is really confusing. Let me kind of uh, simplify it. Basically, you have your chromosome, right? You have your DNA and it's wrapped around this rock called a histone. Okay, uh, and so remember that your DNA can be transcribed, right? When your DNA is used, when we want to make use of it, we have to transcribe it, right? So what we can do is we can add a methyl group to interrupt that transcription. Okay, so we can we can add a methyl group which kind of bulks up the strand. So now the polymerase enzyme which does the transcribing, it can't bind and it can it actually stops transcription. Uh, and so so as we see that when you add a methyl group, you can silence certain genes. So if you add a methyl group to a certain um, uh, DNA sequence, you can silence that sequence. And similarly, or conversely, I'm sorry. Conversely, if you want to activate a sequence or unsilence it, whatever you want to call it, you just chop off that methyl group because now the polymerase can bind to that sequence that was originally hindered by the methyl group, um, stopping it from transcribing. Now transcription can occur. Um, and we're, again, we're going to get into the meat of this in a later module, so I'm not trying to give away too much information. But the main idea is that methylation and demethylation is one modification involved in gene silencing. And the example we see is uh, histone methylation. So methylation silences certain genes and demethylation unsilences them. Example number five of the modifications is uh, proteolysis. And these, the last two are actually the shortest ones. Proteolysis, uh, if you remember, um, lysis refers to like cutting uh, and then proteo of relating to proteins. So proteolysis is of relating to the cutting of proteins and specifically the cutting that activates the protein. So in, in these, in the proteolysis cases, cutting a protein activates it. So you have an, you know, you have a protein uh, that's kind of in its dormant state. It's not very functional. It's not doing anything. It's just floating around in the body. Uh, and then when you want to activate it, you perform this protein modification known as proteolysis in that you cut it. Uh, and the example I'll give is the example of insulin, which must be lysed twice actually for it to be activated. So it has to be cut, uh, sections of it need to be cut off for it to be activated. And, uh, and those things can be rejoined if you want to deactivate it. Uh, finally, example six is ubiquitination. That's a really complicated term. It sounds so fancy and advanced and higher level, but it's, it's really easy. Uh, it's ubiquitination is the addition of ubiquitin, right? Kind of like how methylation was the addition of methyl. Phosphorylation is the addition of phosphor, phosphor, uh, phosphate groups, I'm sorry. Ubiquitination is the addition of the ubiquitin protein. And all you need to do is know what the ubiquitin protein does. Um, and it basically marks protein for degradation. Okay. Uh, and then, and then the remaining parts or materials after degradation are recycled. In other words, when you add this protein, say, say you add the ubiquitin protein, the ubiquitin protein is kind of like a, like a, like the red dot site for like a sniper, like, you know, before, like he shoots somebody, you know, you have that like target. That's kind of what the ubiquitin protein is. You add it and now that part, that protein that it was added to is now marked for death kind of thing. Um, uh, it's not really death, of course, degradation. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of it. That's the only thing you need to know about ubiquitination. Um, so I know this module was very, very, very content heavy. 
not as content heavy as we'll do when we get to the Krebs cycle, but still relatively content heavy. So I want to do a very quick summary. I'm going to run through it really fast. <clears throat> Let's begin. So protein modifications must happen in some cases where proteins in their tertiary or quaternary structures uh, or conformations are still not active. So not all proteins are immediately active once they reach tertiary or quaternary. Some of them require these modifications. There are two forms of modification. There's co-translational modification and there's post-translational. The name kind of tells you what tells you all about it. Co-translational modifications occur during translation, and this is also the less prominent form of modification. The one example we saw with co-translational modification is acetylation. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the first amino acid in the sequence, which you rem might remember, is methionine, right, for eukaryotes, or formal methionine for um, for uh, um, prokaryotes, uh, because that corresponds to the AUG start codon. The first amino acid is replaced with an acetyl group. And if you're not familiar with an acetyl group, it's just a two carbon chain with one carbonyl group. So you have C double bonded to an O, and then you have a, uh, another a methyl group on its side. Um, so that's our only example of co-translational modification. The reason we looked at only one was because it's not very prominent. The main, you know, the more prominent forms of modification are known as post-translational modifications. They occur after translation, usually in the endoplasmic reticulum or the Golgi apparatus. Um, and so the acronym I use for this, because there, there are uh, six examples, is GLUMP, G-L-U-M-P-P. -P, uh, that stands for glycosylation, lipidation, phosphorylation, methylation, proteolysis, and ubiquitination. Um... Yeah, that's not in order, but yeah, that is that one, glump. Um, uh, so, uh, so quickly, glycosylation is the addition of a carb to a protein, and that's used for one example is identification in the case of blood types. Number two is lipidation, which is the addition of a lipid, and that's used for in the example of the GPI anchor. It's used to tether protein, so it plunges into the cell membrane and anchors it. It's kind of like the anchor of a ship. Um, Phosphorylation is the addition or removal of uh, a phosphate group, PO43 minus. Um, and, and it really phosphorylation is the addition and dephosphorylation is the removal. Uh, so addition causes the pump that we analyze. I'm not gonna get into it. The pump rotates outwards and then removal of the phosphate group uh, causes the pump to rotate inwards. And I kind of think of the pump uh, rotating outwards as in it's out and it's open and it's ready to work. And then when it rotates inwards, it's kind of deactivated. Uh, it's, it's kind of in its dormant state, which is, corresponds to the concept of uh, removal of the phosphate group. Because when you phosphorylate something, you activate it. When you dephosphorylate something, you deactivate it. Um, number four is methylation. This is the addition of a methyl group in the case of uh, histone methylation, which activates or deactivates histones' associated gene sequences such that when you add a methyl group, you deactivate it. And when you, de when you chop off that methyl group, you're activating it because the methyl group kind of makes the strand bulky and prevents enzymes from binding to the DNA and uh, the, the uh, transcription to occur. Number five is proteolysis, protein cutting for activation in the example of insulin, which must be cut or lysed twice for it to be activated. Finally, you have ubiquitination, uh, and this is the, addic uh, the addition of the ubiquitin protein, um, uh, which marks uh, another protein for degradation. And after the degradation, these parts are recycled. Um, and so again, just recap, co-translational modifications include acetylation, and post-translational modifications include GLUMP with two Ps.